Turn to First Thessalonians we consider, as we continue our uh, uh, our series. Um, l- last week, I-, I feel like maybe I came on a little strong. It- it- it's only because I'm passionate about this. And-, and a lot of times people say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is we have to get in a habit of interpreting the Scripture in an in a objective and consistent way. We can't, we can't choose to interpret Scripture one way in one place and interpret it another way in another place. We, we, if we get in a habit of being sloppy and lazy in our, in our hermeneutics, which is interpretation, uh, a lot of times it's not going to make a big deal. But if we were consistent, it would probably, it's going to get us in big trouble. I'm seeing this in churches all over. Um, so, so what is we need to make sure in the little things, the big things, the medium things that we are interpreting Scripture rightly. And, and the challenge is, as I talked about last week, is somehow we've got in our head a, a particular position, and whenever we hear anything that's contrary to that, we we shut it out, we 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 resist it, we and and, and we don't really consider all of the evidence. All of the scriptural evidence. We're going to face this in Second Thessalonians 2. It would be like if you had an algebra. If you're going to solve for X, but you don't have all of the... Where's Danny? All of the integers. What? If you're going to solve for X, what do you need? You can tell I wasn't a math major. I'm an English... I was an English major. You need... You need what's that? Yeah, yeah you, need, you, need, you need all of the parts... Okay. Uh, forget it. Forget about algebra. Forget about algebra. First Thessalonians chapter five. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, stop there. Here's what I want you to do: either mentally or actually, if you have notes, I want you to write down what your current understanding or your belief in what the day of the Lord is. So I just read that. What is, if, you were to, if someone were to say, I want you to uh, identify or, or uh, define day of the Lord, what would you write? What do you think it is? Uh, now, we're going to, ha- I hopefully we'll have some fun. We're going to apply a couple of the elements that we talked about last week. Primarily, in the analogy of faith. Anybody remember what the analogy of faith is? Scripture. Interpret Scripture. If you want to find out what the day of the Lord means, where do you go? Not to, your, not to the commentary. There's a time to go to the commentaries. Where do you go to find out what the day of the Lord means? To the Bible. <laughs> okay, and hopefully I'll show you um, that, uh, that studying the Bible is not, a, is not some mysterious, special uh, secret that only pastors know how to do. You can and should be doing this. So, if you were able to look up Day of the Lord, uh, you would find that they, most of them occur in the Old Testament. So, we're going to walk through just a sampling of the occurrences of Day of the Lord, the Old Testament, and see if we can get a general idea of what the Bible understands or tells us about what the Day of the Lord is. So, we're going to do some walking through the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah chapter 13. And I tried to pick the big books, but couldn't do all of it. As Isaiah 13. 
beginning in verse 6. By the way, real quickly, verse 1 says, a prophecy against who? Babylon. So this is a prophecy against Babylon. Verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Who's them? Babylon. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming. For who? For Babylon. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty. I will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Almighty in the day of His burning anger, which is what? The day of the Lord. Turn to Joel chapter 1. So I'm, I'm going to keep you going to the right. Joel the minor prophet Joel, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse 15. Joel is prophesying to Israel. It says, Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before your very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about, because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. This is all a description of the day of the Lord. Amos 5. Next, very next book over. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Zephaniah 1. Keep going. Micah, Nahum... Habakkuk and then Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has, consecra he has consecrated those He has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who have avoided stepping on the threshold who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, with a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. Go back at, go down to verse 14. 
The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. The day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. On and on and on. Uh, uh, one more. Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire. Verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of, that the Lord comes. The day of the Lord comes. and He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. Okay, let's. what does the Bible tell us about, at least the Old Testament, tell us about the day of the Lord? What are What's some judgment, wrath, what doom and gloom? Yeah, the the day of the Lord and and kind of the obvious one is, is there one single unique day of the Lord? No, eight different prophets talk about their own day of the Lord. These prophets, these prophets prophesied over a period of several hundred years. The, the, the day of the Lord in the Bible, at least certainly at this point in the Old Testament, does not refer to one single unique day, 24-hour period. What rather is it? It's a description of a particular activity of God, namely His wrath and punishment for sin. Now, how does that square with your previous understanding of what the day of the Lord is? We're not talking about a once Forever, 24-hour day. It is a description, the day of the Lord is a description of a particular kind of activity that, that God does, namely that it is wrath and punishment. Also with that, if you were to read some of the other examples of the day of the Lord, and we read a couple in the ones that we had, was what I call kind of a collapsing cosmos motif. You know, the sun won't shine. The stars are falling out of the heavens. Is that literal? Did the stars literally, when God judged Babylon, did the stars literally fall out of the sky? Who put them back up there? Did the sun really go dark and not shine anymore? No, this, this, is, this is prophetic language. The, the kind of a, it is a very common prophetic metaphor of of apps, what, what, do you, what do you think the image creates of the sun not shining, the moon not shining, stars falling? What, what, what is that meant to convey? Yeah, disaster, calamity, panic. It, it, it's not that that didn't those stars in the heavens did not literally fall when God judged Babylon. Instead, what did he do? He raised up the Persian Medes, and they came in and wiped out Babylon. And so what is also frequent, if you if you're to study the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament, what is also very common is he him using foreign nations to do his bidding in terms of his judgment, particularly on Israel. So the Day of the Lord is not one unique 24-hour period. The day of the Lord is a broad description of, that, of a particular kind of activity of God 
namely that God is going to come and judge wrongdoing. Okay? Everybody got it? We could, we could look at more. There's a lot more in the Old Testament. Let's look in the New Testament now. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. This, this is the, you, you, are, you know that this is when the, there was a man in their congregation that was having sexual relations with his stepmother. And they were proud about it. They were proud about their freedom. They, they were a progressive church. And God had to correct them. He says, so, verse 4, When you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What's the implication of the day of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 5.5? 5? That the day of the Lord is going to be a day of judgment. The next one is, in fact, our text, 1 Thessalonians 5.2. We'll come back to that. 2 Thessalonians 2.2. We'll start in verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, you've not read anything... We've not read anything in Second Thessalonians, but from our study so far in the day of the Lord, it doesn't mean that this is necessarily going to turn out this way, but what might you anticipate the day of the Lord will mean in Second Thessalonians? Some kind of judgment. Yeah, some, some kind of divine judgment. That's what we'd anticipate. Now, we still have to, when we get there, we'll still have to study it in, in its own context, but that's what, we see, we're letting Scripture guide our interpretation. And what we're trying to do, again, we're trying to narrow down, rule out stuff, and get down to what God has really meant. We, we'll, when we get to 2 Thessalonians, we're, we're going to spend several weeks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, Augustine, the, the great North African scholar Augustine, after all that was said and done, said, I have no clue what chapter 2 means. So I'll, I'll tell you and Augustine what it means. So Just teasing. The last one is 2 Peter 3.10. Second Peter three ten. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare or burned up. Now, do we take this literally? The answer is yes. Why? Because of the genre. This is didactic teaching. This is not prophecy. This is not apocalyptic literature. This is what we call didactic teaching. This we take literal. When I say literally, we take it in terms of how it's intended. This is not. This is not a prophecy. This is not a prophetical book. This is not apocalyptic book. This is a straight teaching by Peter. And so we tend to take this literally in the sense that the the the, the physical earth and heavens will literally be burned up. So, in the, what's the day of the Lord in this one? It's still judgment. But in this particular context, this is the culmination. This is truly the final. There's no day of the Lord after this one. Everything gets burned up. So, 
Come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What do we anticipate 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 being about? Judgment. So let's see if that's the case. In context, let's see if that's the case. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How many of you... Oh, I'm looking out over... How many of you remember uh, the movie? You know what I'm talking about? Was it the 70s? Yeah. Their movie came out, A Thief in the Night. And it was about uh, pre-tribulational rapture. Did it, no one, did Neil saw that? It, it, first of all, as a, just a movie, it was really bad. <laughs> the actor, it was just, it was just bad. I, I could lie to you, but it was, no, I, it was bad. And they got it from this verse. That the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, what's the next word? Destruction. So now we're, now we're thinking that, in fact, this day of the Lord is, in fact, talking about judgment. Because now in context we see destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. Here's a re- repetition of this thief motif. You're all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But, we, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. So now we are really confirming in, in the context that this day of the Lord actually is talking about Judgment did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. What do we have here then? What is this day of the Lord referring to? Well, what are our options? Um, First of all, uh, when we talk, when we see the text on on two different occasions, mention the word thief, we probably want to follow up on that. Where else do we see this notion of, of, of thief? Well, we see it in Matthew chapter 25. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Chapter 24, 1 through 34, is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But in 24, beginning in verse 36 through, 20, through the 25th chapter, He's talking about the second coming, and maybe someday we'll, we'll study that out. Look with me at, the, at chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, keep watch. And, and by this is the portion that's talking about the second coming, because this is one of the questions that they asked Jesus at the beginning of chapter 24. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had not known, had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house be broken into. So also you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So what else do we learn about the day of the Lord in this brief study in 1 Thessalonians 5.2? How is it going to come? Unexpected. It's going to be unexpected. And he uses the, he uses the, the metaphor, the, the analogy of a thief. If, if uh, I said, Scott, uh, at 2 o'clock this morning, Monday morning, uh, an armed robber at two, exactly at 2 a.m. is going to come and break into your house. 
What would you do? Now, I shouldn't ask Scott. What do you do? Yeah, I, I did not want to ask Dan Light. I, I know what Dan would do. No, we'd call the police. We'd board up our house. We, we'd be prepared. We, we'd expect it. So he uses this. The, the day of the Lord in this context is, is, is a time of judgment that's going to come unexpectedly. Now, in context, the question is, back to 1 Thessalonians, what relationship does it have with chapter 4, verses 13 through 18? Remember we the last time, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before that, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we had this phrase, we will be caught up together. We talked about rapture, and, uh, and I was specifically referring to the belief in a what's called a pre-tribulational rapture, where the church is raptured off the earth, secretly, silently raptured off the earth with ushers in to a literal seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. The first three and a half years is world peace. The second three and a half years, literally all hell breaks loose. And, and at the end of those three and a half years, Jesus comes again, and then you have the second coming. And that that ushers in, therefore, what's called a literal thousand-year millennial period where, where uh, Jews are on the earth, and there's a heavenly, there, there's a Jerusalem in the sky, and we are reigning on the earth with Christ. It's a whole elaborate scheme. The, the question is, in verses 13 through 18, we also talk about Jesus coming, the Lord coming. What's the relationship between chapters 5, verses 1 and 11, and chapters 4, verses 13 through 18? So we're trying to get it in context. What are our options? We have several different options. Uh... What's the first option? The first option is that 4, 13 through 18 is, in fact, talking about a pre-tribulational rapture because it talks about being caught up together. And then 5, 1 through 11 is, is talking about the second advent. Uh, and I'll use that term to indicate what we normally think of as his second coming. What's the problem with that option? What's the problem if chapters 13 through 18, the church gets raptured off the earth, and then, we, then 4, 1 through 11 is the second coming? We're not here. Why? Who is he saying to be alert and watchful to? You're gone. If if 13 through 18 is the pre-tribulation rapture, you're gone. Who is he saying to be? Who is he enjoining to be alertful, alertful, alerting, in a state of alertness and watchful to? In chapter five, verses one through eleven, who is he talking to in five through eleven if the church is already gone? That's one option. I don't think I don't think you have a problem with that. The second option is 13 through 18 is talking about the second advent, and 5 1 through 11 is the talking about the rapture. Remember, thief in the night. What's the problem with that option? In other words, 4 13 through 18 is the second coming. 5 1 through 11 is a pre-tribulational rapture. What's the problem with that view? It's the same one, just reversed. If the Lord has already come in his second coming, then who and what's being raptured? It's a problem. That's a problem. It's problematic. Option number three, maybe they're both talking about the rapture. Well, you really don't avoid the problem of number two. <laughs> because once again, if the church is raptured in 13 through 18, who is he talking about in 5, 1 through 11? Who is 5 through 11 addressed to? Thessalonians. So how would they have read that? Wait a minute, Paul. If, if we're already caught up with him, 
Why do I need to? Well, I'm not here to, to work. I'm not here to be alert. I'm not here to be watchful. The second, I guess the, the last option, and I think is the only one that, we, that, that works textually and logically, is they both refer to the second coming. The 13th, 18th, not talking about pre-tribulation rapture. In fact, they're both talking about the second coming, but from, from different focus and different aspects. What was, the, what was the issue in 13 through 18? Anybody remember? What was the issue in 13 through 18? Yeah, the, the, the issue was, in fact, what happens to those who have died? They were concerned about those who had already died. So Paul wrote 13 through 18 to reassure them that, that the deceased loved ones will not miss out when Jesus comes. And 5, 1 through 11 now is an admonition to be ready for that event. Does that make sense? In fact, he says now about times and dates. He, he doesn't complete that thought. What's the times and dates he's talking about in context? Times and dates of 13 through 11, yeah, 13 through 18. Now about the times and dates of his coming. He's not talking about, well, he's actually talking about maybe that precise period of the Lord's second advent. And he, and he, and he has this, this motif that what will be the nature of this second coming? Like a thief. They will be not just unexpected, but unprepared. Unexpected and unprepared. Um, quickly turn to Matthew, back to Matthew 25. We, we see Paul drawing upon Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Matthew 25, he, he gives a series of uh, parables. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps and did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. It was... Unexpected. His arrival was unexpected. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go, sell, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins were already, who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And what was the problem? They... The, the bridegroom came unexpectedly and they were unprepared. V- verse, um, let's see here for time-wise. Um, well, we'll, well, we'll leave it at that. This notion of the day of the Lord, a time of judgment, the second advent of Christ, will come at a time that is unexpected. In fact, in verse 3, not just unexpected, but at the moment when, when humanity probably feels safest. Uh, again, turn back to 1 Thessalonians. When they're all saying peace and safety. Uh, if we were to continue reading in Matthew, he talks about the second coming being like the days of Noah. 
He said that people would be marrying and bearing and eating. And the notion there is not that they were partying. The notion there is that life will, life will be going on as normal. There, there, there will just be normal. Life will be going just as normal. People will be going to work. They'll be eating. They'll be, and 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 the Lord will come unexpectedly. First Thessalonians five talks about when they're saying peace and safety. Then what happens? Suddenly, unexpectedly, the Lord will come. And what will happen? Starts with D, rhymes with destruction. <laughs> destruction. 5, 1 through 11 really can't be about a pre-tribulation rapture because what happens in 5, 1 through 11? Judgment, wrath, and destruction of unbelievers. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. So unbelievers are, are unprepared and they are not expecting it. But he says in verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. And now he's going to give us a series of, of metaphors. We are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and slober. Do you th- slober. So the more you slobber, the better off. Is he talking about literal sleep, do you think? No. These are metaphors. Uh, so he's, so he, 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 we have these series of metaphors. Darkness versus light. We have sleep versus awake. Look at verse 7. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith, and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, this word sober in some of our translations, what do some of your translations translate that as? Self-controlled. Self-controlled. Anything else? Holman says serious. This is a, this is a difficult word to translate into English. Uh, when we hear the word sober, what do we think of? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really has a a broad semantic range. It has a notion of right thinking, um, of being in your right mind, um, of, of in fact being self-controlled, uh, not just in our actions, but in our thinking and our thoughts, because he's going to later on talk about what was going on in the church in Thessalonica, and that was what? They quit their jobs. Oh, the Lord's coming. They quit their jobs. They were being busybodies. They were living off other people in the church, and he has to correct that. So we have darkness versus light, sleep versus awake, night versus day. These are all metaphors, I think, that talk about several different issues. One, I think it has a spiritual element. What is spiritual darkness? John has a lot to say in his epistle about he uses darkness as a metaphor. What does spiritual darkness represent? Error, unbelief, rejection. What about moral, darkness morally? Sin, lawless, transgressions. Uh, what about volitional darkness? You know, volition is our will. Uh, volitional darkness would be resistance, resentment. Uh, th- these are all wrapped up in these metaphors. And he's saying, we are not like that. He says, in fact, on two different occasions, he says, I want you to be sober. 
And, and he describes and defines what he means by that in this case. Look at me at verse 8. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, this the word putting is a is a um, I just lost my my this word uh, participle participle is in, in the Bible is usually translated one of two ways, either means or result. So is he saying, I want you to be sober because you've already put on faith as a result of you putting on faith and love and hope? Or is he saying by means of putting on faith, hope and love? We're not sure, but in either case, he defines sober as being what? How would you define someone who has faith, hope and love? They have those attributes. They are saved. This is a sign of true belief. Faith, hope and love. This is the, the, that holy triad that we see throughout the New Testament. This is a sign. So how are we to be prepared for the Lord's second coming? Never go to a movie theater? Biblically, in context, what does being prepared mean? Believing in Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Those who are in darkness have not. They, are, they remain in moral darkness. They remain in spiritual darkness. They re- remain in volitional darkness. And darkness meaning unbelief. Uh, preparing doesn't mean, oh, I've got to be better, better, better. I've got to be gooder, gooder, gooder. Um, I, when I was growing up, and this, by the way, is not a bad rule of thumb. I'm not, I'm not saying it shouldn't be the case. But uh, someone once said, you know, you should never be in a place that it, when Jesus comes, you'd be embarrassed that you were there. And that's probably a good rule of thumb. But that's really not what he's talking about in terms of being prepared. Preparedness means in whose righteousness are you counting on when he comes. We ask this to people all the time. If you're to die today right now, what would you say to God when he says, why should I let you into my heaven? A prepared person says what? Just Jesus died for me on the, on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection alone. Not Jesus' death plus the sacraments. Not Jesus' death but my good life. Not Jesus' death but my good intentions, my sincerity. It is Christ alone. And that's what he says in verse 9. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all these metaphors are, are describing a person who is both, on the one hand, who is unsaved, but the person who is saved. That's what being prepared means. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, now here he's probably shifting the metaphor to what he's talked about earlier in, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, those who, are, who, have, who have slept, a metaphor for death, whether we are dead or alive, we may live together with him. And then he concludes, concludes by saying, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And how do we encourage one another, build one another up? Do we say, keep a stiff upper lip? We incur, in context, we encourage and, and, and comfort one another by doing what? That he's coming again. And be prepared. Do you know Christ? And that's the question I asked this morning. If Jesus came this morning, 
Are you prepared? I'm not talking about is there unconfessed sin in your life. I'm not talking about how well you live this week. Uh, I'm not talking about any of that, as important as that is. I'm talking about can you, without a hesitation, say, I am ready. I am prepared. That if Jesus came today, if Jesus came right now, I could stand before him and say, because of Christ and Christ alone, that I place my faith in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. You know, we're a smaller church, and I know most of you, I never want to assume anything. If, if, if you can't really say that, we're not going to make you walk an aisle. We're not going to make you raise your hand. We're not going to make you fill out a card. I, but right where you're seated, I just want you to do some business with the Lord. Are you ready? Do you believe that Jesus is God, fully God and fully man, that he died on the cross for your sin? And that his death fully satisfied God's wrath and God's judgment for you. And then when the day of the Lord comes, his second advent comes, you can stand before him holy and blameless, not because of you, but because of Christ. That's being prepared. And in fact, he says, he will say, welcome home, a good and faithful servant. Let's pray.